podcast is part of the Sports Social Podcast Network. The Two-Footed Podcast is brought to you by EPLindex.com and our presenting sponsor, Liberty Shield. Liberty Shield is a VPN provider. A virtual privacy network allows you to go online, change your location, access things you're geo-blocked from while keeping your data safe. So, as an example, if you are a UK expat and want access to BBC iPlayer to watch Match of the Day or ITV Hub or all four, but you get that message that says this content is not available in your location, a Liberty Shield VPN gets you around that block, allows you to watch whatever you want on those services while also keeping your data safe. And it goes further than that. It allows you to open up Netflix's entire library by just changing your IP address. Liberty Shield is the number one rated VPN provider on Trustpilot with five-star ratings across the board. So go to LibertyShield.com right now, use the code EPL25 and get either the hardware package or the software package. The hardware package is a router that you plug into your existing router and any item you want to change the IP address on, be it your phone or your television, you connect that to the new Liberty Shield router. All other items can remain connected to your existing router. There's also a software package, which is instantly downloadable to your device, and you can get using straight away. Again, libertyshield.com, EPL25 for 25% off at checkout. We're also brought to you by Home of Hopcroft, a giftware and homeware company located in Scotland, but shipping worldwide. Check out homeofhopcroft.co.uk and do check out the EPL Index and Anfield Index shops, which you'll find on Etsy. Use the codes EPL10 or RED10 for 10% off at checkout. And lastly, do remember to check out A Tad Predictable, hosted by Tadiwa. That podcast is on this feed before every Premier League match week. And then the EPL Roundtable, hosted by Kevin DeVries, on its own EPL Roundtable feed. So just search EPL Roundtable in your podcast device. And that's out after every match week. Now, on with the show. What's good, boys and girls? Two-footed podcast. Today is Tuesday. It is the 24th of October. Hope you're all well. The weather is surprisingly good. Now, it did piss rain earlier, but the weather's good now, so we're going to take it as a win. We'll take any decent bit of weather that's not raining as a win in Ireland in late October. Uh, Folks, we had football last night. We had a Premier League match between Tottenham Hotspur and Fulham, and Spurs went back to the top of the table with a 2-0 win. Young Min Sun with the opener, really, really nicely worked goal and a great, great finish. This guy is one of the most underrated players in Premier League history. And James Madison with the second to wrap it up on 54. Spurs could have scored a couple more. Uh, they had some good chances. Richarlison missed a decent chance. 
Kulisevsky had a decent chance. Madison had a good chance. But on the flip side, Fulham could have scored a couple. Uh, Vicario made two really good saves. One from a Joao Polina header, and the second from Raul Jimenez when he was slipped through in a 1v1 situation. I've been really impressed with Spurs this season. I think they've played outstanding football. I think the fact that they have a brand new defence and goalkeeper and midfield and it's all functioning so well is such a tribute to Ange Postacoglu and his coaching. I don't think anybody has watched Tottenham this season and not come away impressed by Mickey van de Ven or Destiny Adoji. I think that's right now the best left-sided defence that you'll find probably anywhere in Europe for a combination, especially for a young combination like those two. Spurs fans should be really excited. Those two could be there for the next 10 years. And those two, they're on a trajectory to be world-class in two to three years. That's the level of talent, athleticism, fundamentals that these two have. It's very, very impressive. Romero next to them, I think he's one of the best defenders in the world. And then Pedro Porro at right back, I've been really impressed with as well. I think he has really taken up the challenge of becoming more of a right back as opposed to a wing back, which he'd always been previously. I think his defensive work has improved. He's learned how to harness his pace and aggression into a defensive manner as opposed to just an attacking manner, which reminds me of Andy Robertson when he first came to Liverpool. He played a little bit like a chicken with his head cut off and his arse on fire, and he would run around aimlessly, but because he was quick and aggressive, he would snap into challenges, he would get tight on wingers, and he he would provide a solid defensive platform. Then, as he got more experience, played next to Van Dijk a bit more, took on some guidance, developed, became more intelligent, then Andy Robertson established himself as the best left-back in the world. I don't think Poro will establish himself as the best right back in the world, but I see a lot of similarities in how his defensive work is coming on in comparison to how Robertson's did back in the day. Um, So that's all very good. Vicario does look a keeper, doesn't he? Like, when you consider their North London rivals have this headache now of David Raya or Aaron Ramsdale, both of them quite flawed, both of them shaky in terms of Whenever they're pressured, they can have brain farts. Vicario just looks very level-headed, very calm, goes about his business the right way, saves everything you'd expect him to save, and then saves shots you don't expect him to save. That header from Paulinho looked like it was past him, and he managed to claw it out. So I've been very impressed with that defensive uh, unit. It's, It's impossible not to be impressed. With Papa Matarsar, I think he's so, so good. Uh, Hoysberg came in last night for Basuma. My expectation is he goes back out now and Basuma comes back in because Basuma has also been great this year. And if that group of seven can stay fit and stay consistent, that's what will drive Spurs to top four. Because in attack, you can rely on Madison, you can rely on Son. You can rely on Kulisevsky. The other spot's a bit of a wild card. But the issue with all of those players, including Richarlison, is injuries. So 
that's the one concern for Spurs in, in attack. But because they've got those four issues, plus Brennan Johnson, we saw um, Giovanni Lo play last night, come off the bench. We saw Alejo Velez come off the bench last night. They've also got Brian Hill there as an option. He was on the bench last night, so nice to see him at least involved in the squad, and hopefully we'll see him get some minutes. They do have depth, and as long as they have, say, two of Madison, Son, and Kulisewski, I think they're going to be fine, as long as they can keep two of them fit at all times. Even, even to be fair, even if it was only one of them, as long as the good depth is available, and as long as, say, Richarlison's also available, I think they'll be fine as long as that defensive platform stays there for them. Now, they are giving up chances. But that's what happens when you play for a top club and you play a little bit of a risky strategy. Liverpool, when Van Dijk first arrived and they started playing a much higher line, gave up a lot of chances. It was just that he had the recovery pace to get back and deal with things. Then when they got Allison, they actually started playing a bit more conservative, but they would still give up chances and they felt comfortable giving up those chances because they're a the goalkeeper they could rely on. And I I don't know that the carry was ever going to be Allison level. I'm not suggesting that at all. But it looks like Spurs have a goalkeeper they can rely on. In Van de Ven, they have that centre back with incredible recovery pace. Both fullbacks are rapid. They provide a really good shield in front of the centre-backs. Both centre-backs are outstanding 1v1. Absolutely outstanding. Mickey van der Ven's probably the best 1v1 centre-back in the world other than Virgil van Dijk. And with his recovery pace at this stage, he might actually track above Virgil in terms of chase-back 1v1 defending. So a ball over the top of a full-back your centre-back has to move out and deal with it. Virgil used to be unbeatable in that regard. Now Van de Ven looks pretty unbeatable in that regard. Um, I really like the Spurs team. I do. I don't really like this Fulham team. Uh, like Individually, there's, there's definitely talent there. Leno's a good goalkeeper. Robinson's a good left-back. I'm not a big fan of Castanier. I'm... Tim Ream had a really good season last year, but we've seen Tim Ream. Like, that season is an outlier in his Premier League career. Calvin Bassey, the talent is there. I just don't know if it's there between the years. He just makes so many basic errors. It also didn't help him last night playing as the right side centre-back because he's entirely left-footed. I think his role is actually left-back slotting into left centre-back in a three with an attack-minded right-back who pushes on as a winger or into midfield. I think then Bassi would be good, but I think he also needs someone next to him to hold his hand and talk him through games. Polini is very good. Lukic is very good. Pereira is a good player. I'm not overly keen on Di Cordova-Reed, but I, I get what he brings. Willian, I mean, the, the, we thought he was washed. He's He's continues to show he's still got a little bit left in the tank. But up front is where I, where I have, you know, major concerns. I mean, Carlos Finicius, he had that one season at Benfica where he was really good. And other than that, he just hasn't provided goals. 
he's got good hold of play. He's a willing runner. He he works the channels. He does all those things. He's just in the box. He just doesn't have it. Raul Jimenez, again, all-round game is, is still good. He's not as aggressive as he once was, which is understandable, but he just doesn't have the finishing touch. He doesn't have that, doesn't have that extra half yard of speed that he used to have either. He used to just be really quick over those first three to four yards just to get a little bit of separation from a centre-back and he'd get his shot away. He just doesn't have it as much now. Um, Harry Wilson's a decent player. He's a great set-piece taker. It's just... I'm not sure as an overall player he's he's actually a Premier League caliber player. Iwobi is, is solid. Harrison Reed is solid. Tom Kearney's okay. Like it's not a it's not a relegation contender unless they lose Polina. And by then I think they'll be in a safe enough position, but they definitely need help in January. Um, they definitely need help in January. And, and in January, we could see Spurs go out and say, you know what? We're going to go and get Ivan Tony. We're going to put Sonny back on the left. We're going to go Tony up front. We've got Kulisevsky, Madison, and Son with Tony up front. The two boys patrolling in midfield, Basuma and Ansar, the back four that are developing into a really good unit. And that's going to be our team. And we're going to roll with that team. And that team is strong everywhere. Like there's no area you'd look at and say, well, that's a weak point. You could you could make the point of inexperienced left back, a right back who is still learning how to be a right back. And I mean he's 24 at this point, Pedro Poro. So, you know, there is a ceiling on what he can become. But if he does continue to improve defensively, that will take away that weak point. The one it is a weakness, so it has to be highlighted. The one area that does concern me just a little bit is how aggressive both centre-backs are, especially Romero. And we've seen Romero get, what, three red cards since he came to Spurs? Is it three? Let me have a quick look. Um, Last season, he got 11 yellow cards and, and one red card, which... It's a little bit much, you know, it's a little bit much. Uh, this season, two yellow cards. So he is he is definitely reining back in the aggression. Um, and the two games he was booked in was late against Arsenal, late against Spurs, or late against Liverpool, rather. Uh, yeah, last season, last season, 11 yellows and two reds in all competitions. He sent off in the Champions League as well. That's not great. The season before that, 11 yellows and one red uh, sent off in the Conference League. You know, these are things that concern me a little bit, especially when you consider that that first season, he only played 30 games in all competitions, 2,500 minutes. Like his last season in Serie A, when he was the best defender in the league, but he still picked up 15 bookings in 42 games, 10 in the league. The season before that, he got 15 bookings, 14 in 30 league matches, and a red card. Now, his red cards always tend to be second yellows. Season before that, he's 11 yellows in 27 league games with, with Genoa. He was really good, but 11 yellows, one red as a result of two yellows, and a straight red. 
And the season before that, he was playing in Argentina, so we don't have uh, decent de- decent numbers. I would like to see him try and keep it below double figures. Like, get nine yellow cards across the season should be the target for him. Max- maximum. And no reds. He's made a decent start. But I'd like to see him just rein it in just a little bit. Just He's really good. He's good everywhere. He's good on the ball. He's good 1v1. He's good in the air. He's quick. He recovers well. He reads the game really well. It's just those small lapses in judgment where he just nips in a little bit too late on things. That's where I want him to improve. If he does that, he's the complete package. He's he's an outstanding defender. Like He's better than the two boys at Arsenal. They get... Saliba gets incredible amounts of overrating. Romero's significantly better than him as a centre-back. And he's better on the ball. But because he's not 6-3 and doesn't have that elegance to his game, doesn't play like he doesn't break sweat, Romero, when he comes off the pitch, looks like he's just climbed a mountain. Because he doesn't have that elegance, because he's a little bit nastier, he doesn't get the respect he deserves. He is significantly better than William Saliba. It's not even a, a competition. Not even close. Anyway, uh, right on to the winners and losers. We're going to start with Spurs as as a winner for the weekend because they finished the weekend top of the league. Nine games, seven wins, two draws. 20 goals scored. It's really impressive going forward. Only eight conceded. And for the concerns people have about their defence and the criticism of some of the individuals over the last two years, and by some of them I, I do mean Poro and Romero, and to an extent, the idiots who just watched a few clips of Mickey van de Ven or judged him after an own goal on the opening day, um, only City have conceded less goals than Spurs. So they're the first winner of the weekend. Uh, second winner is going to be Aston Villa. A really, really strong performance, a really good home win against a good West Ham team. Clinical, ruthless, just very, very impressed. My third winner then, I'm going to go Luton. Even though they didn't win, they were 2-0 down away from home with, what, 15 minutes left in the game? Not even, sorry. Well, including stoppage time, there probably was about 15 minutes, but... To the 90, we were seven minutes from the final whistle. And they were 2-0 down away from home. And they managed to come back and get a point. That, to me, that's the type of result a team who are going to struggle all season to stay in the division, that's the type of result that they need to be picking up. So I'm very, very impressed that they were able to do that. Um, They're my three winners then. Spurs... Villa and Luton. My losers for the weekend, we're going to start with my favourite club, Everton Football Club. It's not just the defeat, it's the manner of the defeat, it's the lack of ambition, it's the desire to turn up and not play football, and it's also the behaviour of their fans afterwards. I mean, 
Jeez, look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. I'm not going to go over them again. I did them yesterday. Look at the numbers. Liverpool don't beat you every time because of referees. That's just not the case. Liverpool don't finish 30 points ahead of you each season because of referees. It's just not the case. Look internally at your own club and try and figure out why this group of players, which is every bit as talented as a bunch of those clubs that are four and five points ahead of you, three and four and five points ahead of you, more talented than some, but yet continues to underachieve for the third season in a row. Last season, you were very, very fortunate to stay up. Very, very fortunate to stay up in 17th spot. The season before, you were also very, very fortunate to stay up in 16th spot. And had Burnley taken some of the chances they had in their last few games, you might well have gone down because Leeds, an extra point somewhere along the way, given the injuries they had. Leeds' injuries are why they finished below you. And Burnley just missing glorious chances or throwing away Leeds. That's why they finished above you. It was nothing to do with what Everton did. Everton stayed up because other teams were inept. Same last season. That's the only reason they're still a Premier League team. And this season, Everton are still inept. And the only reason they're not in the bottom three is because four other teams have been more inept. But there's two of them that I think will get their act together. I don't just don't know if they'll do it in time to save themselves. One is Bournemouth and the other is Burnley. Sheffield United, I look at the squad and I just don't see how they stay up. The same is true of Luton. But with Luton, because they just don't care what people think about them, like Luton don't care if you watch them play 40 long balls in a row and think, God, this is awful. They don't care. They only care if one of those long balls leads to a goal for themselves and if they can keep a clean sheet or keep the opposition to one at the other end. That's the only thing Luton care about. They just care about the outcome. They don't care about the journey. Second loser, I've got to go Crystal Palace just because of the pumping that they got up at St. James's Park. Um, I get they had injuries and they had to play players who clearly weren't fit. But there was just a manner in which the heads went. They just, you know, the confidence went out of them after the first goal, which was early. The belief went out of them after the second goal and they kind of felt like they gave up from there. And Toon could have scored three or four more. And my third loser of the weekend, I mean, it's it's, it's unfortunate because so many of the team played well. But I've got to give it to Bournemouth. Gary O'Neill coming back with his new club. He wanted to, you know, to prove that you were wrong to sack him. And he walked away with three points. And in four months' time, if we're sitting having having a conversation about why Bournemouth are still second bottom of the league and on their second manager, we won't... Well, I, I will because I remember weird things, but people won't look at it and go, Wolves, okay, well, 
They were unlucky there because Lewis Cook lost his head. Unfortunately, when one of your players loses their head like that, you lose the right to call yourselves unlucky. And when the, the winning goal of the game is a result of your captain doing a stupid thing and then your six foot five midfielder getting bullied, you don't, you, you can't call yourself unlucky, I'm afraid. So we'll just look back on that and say, well, that's a bad defeat at home to Wolves because at the time, Wolves are right down in that mix with you. You know, Wolves were 16th, I think, going into the weekend. Um, 60 to 15 to 16th. They were, they were somewhere in that mix. Um, so unfortunately, you're not getting a free pass for that one. Uh, right. We might take a break now. Come back. We're going to do our power rankings for left back. And I expect one of my picks, people will say, is too high. But uh, we'll do that after the break, and then we'll do the gossip. And that will be, well, that will be most of us for today. I'll see you after this. Right. Welcome back. So uh, before we get into our power rankings, we do have Champions League action tonight. In Group A, Galatasaray take on Bayern Munich. That is the 5.45 kickoff. While Manchester United will host Copenhagen at 8pm. Now, United, obviously, no points so far. They will be expecting to beat Copenhagen in both games. And they have to beat Copenhagen in both games. Because, frankly, I don't fancy them to beat Bayern at home. And... I think Galatasaray will beat Copenhagen, which means United will have to go to Galatasaray and win in Istanbul. And that's only if, only if they can take six points from Copenhagen. They've got to win tonight. Otherwise, they're done and dusted in my view. I I think they're done and dusted if they don't win this game tonight. Uh, In... Group B, Sevilla against Arsenal and Lens against PSV Eindhoven. Uh, Lens beat Arsenal last time out, but Arsenal did obviously hammer PSV in the opening game. Arsenal currently sits second in the group. Sevilla have not been good this season, but they're at home. Arsenal look a little bit naive in Europe. Sevilla have quite a few experienced players. There's a lot of shithousery in that team. They'll be very physical with Arsenal. It'll be interesting to see how Arsenal react to Sevilla. Uh, At the weekend, Real Madrid did not react well, did not enjoy their outing against Sevilla, who really put it up to them and really forced them to play a game they didn't want to play. And when you look at You've got Ramos at centre-back. He's well past his best, but he is still one of the, game, the game's great shithouses. In midfield, you've got Jibril Sow, you've got Rakitic, and you've got Bubakari Samari. That's big physical runners in midfield. And enough quality from Rakitic to you know be able to unlock a defence. In attack... Luka Bacchio on the right wing, if he starts tonight, I'm really hopeful that he will finally unlock all of the talent that's there. But the other two are the ones Arsenal need to be concerned with. 
and Naziri and Ocampos, if there's a if there's a big flaw in this Arsenal team, it's that you can get at them by going direct. And Ben White is soft. And he doesn't like the aerial battle. And if Ocampos puts it up to him, I think that's a, an avenue for Sevilla to hurt Arsenal. And then Naziri is a nightmare to deal with. If you get any kind of decent ball into the box, which they can through Navas and Acuna, that will cause Arsenal problems. And then Naziri could be a big issue for them. There's some quality off the bench in Suso, Rafa Mir, Lamella, uh, Jordan, Nianzu. I- I'd like to see Nianzu play, but at the moment he's he's not getting uh, the first choice nod. But that'll be a tough test for Arsenal, but I do expect them to win the game. Uh, again, these are both uh, 8pm kickoffs for Group C. It is Braga at home to Real Madrid. Real have won both games so far. Haven't been overly convincing in either. Needed a very, very late Jude Bellingham goal in the first game. Needed an own goal in the second game, though in fairness, in fairness, Valverde's shot was an absolute rocket. It wasn't the, the, a typical own goal. Um, but again, they weren't hugely impressive in that one. And then Union Berlin against Napoli. Berlin have not been good. They went 2-0 up against Braga and then threw it away. Now, they did put it up to Real in terms of they were staunch defensively and offered a threat in the counter, but Kvitsa seems to have rediscovered some form. Osman's in form. I think Napoli should win that one. Uh, Group D then, finally, Inter Milan versus Red Bull Salzburg at 5.45 and Benfica versus Real Sociedad at 8pm. Sociedad are top of that group right now. Inter are second. They're the two I expect to come through. But we really need Benfica to turn up in this competition. They lost their opening game to Salzburg. Then they lost in, in Milan, and there's no shame in that at all. But you'd really need them to show up tonight at home to Real Sociedad. A lot of good games tonight. A lot of good games. Two good games in the early slot. I think I'll go Galatasaray versus Bayern Munich over the Inter-Red Bull game. But picking an 8pm game is tough here. I, I I would generally just watch Napoli, but I just don't like watching them under this manager. Um, I don't want to watch either the English clubs because I see enough of them. I can watch those games t- tonight or tomorrow or whenever. I don't want to spend my time watching them live. Um, I might go Benfica Rail Saucy. That is the 8pm kickoff to watch. I think I might do that. The Real Madrid are always a curiosity because there's so many good players, but there is flaws in that team. There's definite flaws in that team. Um, Right, power ranking. So, left back. Firstly, to reiterate the rules, I have to have seen them play at least 25 times. I have to have seen them either live or on footage, you know, old games, 25 times, and we're only judging 1970 and onwards. So, nod of the cap to Nilton Santos, who's undeniably one of the 10 best left-backs of all time. Brazilian legend, 75 caps between 49 and 62. 
played for Bodafogo from 1948 until 1964, played well over 700 games to them, part of the World Cup winning Brazilian teams in 58 and 62. An incredible player, an all-time great, but unfortunately, he's before the time were allotted, or I, well, were allotted. I've allotted this time to myself. Uh, number one, there can be no debates. There can be no surprise. It's very simple. It's Paolo Maldini. And the gulf here, I think, is the biggest gulf in any position. And I've got nine other genuinely great left backs here. But the gap from one to two, the gap from one to two is bigger than the gap from two to ten. Let's put it that way. And I don't think that's the case in any other position. Paolo Maldini is the greatest defender who's ever lived. Played for AC Milan and AC Milan only in his club career from 1984-85 through to 1908-09. Majority of his career as a left back. Did obviously then move into centre back for the last couple of seasons. Uh, What's incredible about him is he was a right-sided midfielder. He wasn't a defender and he wasn't left-footed. He just got put there because they had injuries. And in his words, they just sort of forgot that that wasn't his position and he just got on with it. In his second season, 1985-86, he played 40 games. He was 17. He played 40 games for AC Milan. He won seven Serie A titles. He won five European Cups and got to three other finals. Eight European Cup finals in his career. And if you look at those finals that he lost, 1993, they lose to Marseille. They should have won that year. They were the better team. 1995, they lose to Ajax. On paper, you could, of course, make the argument that Milan were stronger. But Ajax also beat them twice in the group stage. So there was just something about that Ajax team that Milan couldn't figure out. 2005, how they didn't win that final is still a mystery. By far the better team, 3-0 up and threw it away in six minutes. Like if you go man for man, that Liverpool team versus that Milan team, being realistic, it's Milan everywhere bar one spot. Dida, for his flaws, you would take over Dudek, Cafu over Finnan, Stam over Carragher, Nesta over Hippia, Maldini over Triori. They're not even debatable. <clears throat> Pirlo Alonso probably is debatable. So you can go either way with that. Gattuso or Gerard is Gerard. However, for what Napoli or for what Milan needed, Gattuso was the better fit, but Gerard's the better player. Garcia or Seedorf is clearly Seedorf. Kaka or John Arnorisa, I'm just listing the midfielders here, it's Kaka. In attack, Shevchenko or Kuehl, it's Shevchenko. Crespo or Barros, it's Crespo. Gerard gets in, and then it's Pirlo or Alonso, and it just depends on what you really want. 
Alonso was a bit better defensively, a better long passer. Pirlo was a better dictator of the game and a better short passer. I would I would probably lean Alonso if I'm putting Gerard in because I need to improve defensively because Gerard while he would make big tackles was a bit of a liability defensively because he would just switch off or wouldn't wouldn't be in the right position. It's why managers tried to avoid playing him there, but he obviously had the physical capacity to do it. And if, with the right manager, he probably learns it a lot better as well. Um, so we probably go two Liverpool players and nine Milan players. Carlo or Rafa, it's Carlo, even though Rafa at that point was great. This should have been no contest. Even look at the bench. Kaladze, good defender. Costa Curta, all-time great. Rui Costa, incredible. Uh, De Rosso is okay. Serginho was good. John Dal Thomason was good. <clears throat> Liverpool's only good sub was Didi Hama. The rest are like Josemi, Nunes, Biscan, Cisse, Schmitzer. They're decent, but they're not not top level players. Whereas for Milan, the bench is very strong. They've got, I would say, four top level players, including Abiati, the sub keeper, who's better than Scott Carson who was on Liverpool's bench, and then three who were decent. You'd probably take Haman and Cisse over DeRoso and Thomason, and maybe not even Cisse over Thomason. Anyway, Paolo Maldini probably should have won seven European Cups, which, like... It's incredible. But to win your first one in 1989 and your your fifth and final one in 2007 and be great in all of them, it's a pretty impressive achievement. Uh, World Cup runner-up with Italy in 94, also third place in 1990. European Championship runner-up with Italy in 2000, probably deserved more. Third place in the Ballon d'Or twice. World Soccer Magazine Player of the Year 94. FIFA World Player of the Year second place in 95 behind George Weah. Just an incredible defender. An absolutely incredible defender. There is no argument for anyone else. This is my controversial pick and I am absolutely allowing my my heart to pick this one. But there was... There were three, no, I'm sorry, there were four. There were four options here that I had all kind of in a dead heat. And I've gone with Dennis Irwin as my second best left back ever. And I expect that people will disagree. I don't care. Dennis Irwin for Manchester United in Ireland was flawless. Never had a bad game. Never less than 7 out of 10. Frequently 8 and 9 out of 10. Played both sides. As good going forward as he was defensively. And he was locked down defensively. Both footed. Corners, free kicks, penalties. Perfect mentality. Never sought the limelight. Never sought excessive amounts of credit for anything. Just went out and got on with his job. And always did it very, very well. Always, always, always did it very, very well. And if you look at his games played, 
he was he was always fit and available. Like in the latter years at United, he started playing less league games because Phil Neville had come along. So they were able to use Phil Neville against the Dross and save Irwin for the Champions League. Like the season they won the treble, he only played 29 league games. They played 12 in the Champions League, 48 in all competitions. His last couple of seasons, obviously, he, he had declined. He was past his best. But even when he went to Wolves, he dropped down a division, remember, to go to Wolves. He played 52 games. Helped them get promoted, played 33 in that season. He was like 36, 37. I think he started the season 36 and 37 in that season in which he played 52 games for Wolves in the championship. 43 in the league, 52 in all competitions. I've gone with him number two. The players who easily could be number two, Paul Breitner, the greatest German left back of all time, also a great midfield player, one of the best German players ever. Only won 48 caps for West Germany. That was down to him falling out with pretty much everybody he ever crossed paths with. In the true spirit of great German players being complete arseholes, he was a complete arsehole. But he owned it. He didn't care. He demanded a certain standard. And if players couldn't meet that standard, he just didn't speak to them. If you made a mistake on the Saturday, he wouldn't speak to you maybe till Thursday or Friday. If he felt you'd let the team down or you hadn't given absolutely everything, he just wouldn't speak to you. And he would openly tell the manager in meetings in front of you, he shouldn't be in the team. He's not giving us all. He's not good enough, whatever. Didn't care. Played for Bayern. Played for Real. Played for Eintracht Braunschweig. Club I'm not hugely familiar with. And then finished off his career with Bayern. But Paul Breitner was special. A, a genuinely special player. Um, also in the... Just in terms of honours, he won five Bundesligas, a European Cup with Bayern. He won two La Liga titles and he won the World Cup and the European Championships with Germany. So has the the CV of of success, was also a Ballon d'Or runner-up in 1981 and German Football of the Year the same year. So, you know, there's no doubting the credentials there. Um, Rude Krull is another in this list of players who absolutely could be number two. Uh, Spent his, well, the majority of his playing career with Napoli, went to Vancouver Whitecaps, then had a little second career with Napoli, finished off with Cannes, 83 caps for the Netherlands, part of that incredible Dutch team in the 1970s. Could genuinely have played anywhere on the pitch. Played left back, played sweeper. I think in 78 he played sweeper. Twice runner-up at the World Cup, runner uh, European Championship third place. Third place in the Ballon d'Or in 1979. Was Serie A Football of the Year, like when he was past his best. Um, won six league titles with Ajax. Won three European Cups with Ajax. One of the pioneers of total football. One of the players who made total football possible because of his versatility. 
you know, sometimes you watch players and it just all looks very, very easy for them. And they just sort of breeze across the ground. The Rolls-Royce footballer, that's what he was. That's what he was. Elegant, upright, six foot, but looked taller because he played quite upright. Just a really good player. Really, really, no, not a good player. He's a great player. A genuinely great player. Great pass for the ball. Left back to right wing, that switch. He's maybe the best that's ever done that. Um, And the final name in this list, who comes in fifth, but could easily have been second, is Giacinto Fichetia of Inter Milan. Played for Inter from 1960 to 78. So I, I'm only taking eight years of his career here, plus seven years of his international career. But you want to talk about special. Like, from a defensive point of view, he had absolutely everything. He was 6'3", built like a tank, but he was quick. He was... Alessandro Bastoni is the closest thing in the modern game to him. Size, build, speed, but technical ability as well. And he locked down that Italian left side for 14 years, the Inter left side for 18 years, rarely beaten, could play centre-back or in midfield, would play right-back if needed, Didn't, didn't have any hold up about going and playing on the wrong side. One of the best crossers of all time. And again, just 6-3. Looked out of place. You watch these these games, he's going up against these little small wingers and just physically dominating them and then having that incredible technical ability to go with it. Um, Four-time Serie A winner with Inter. Won two European Cups with, with Inter back in the 60s, very early in his career. Won the European Championships with Italy in the 60s as well, but I'm only basing it on the 70s, and I, and I have him fifth. Now, if I was to base it on the 60s, he's probably second. Like, that's the truth of it. If I was to include his entire career, he's probably second. Uh, also finished as a Ballon d'Or runner-up. Imagine a left-back finishing in the top two or three in the Ballon d'Or. And we've had Maldini, Breitner, Kroll, and Fischetta, Fischetti, who've all done that. Pretty incredible. Um, number six, then, I've gone Roberto Carlos. I mean, do I need to say much? Exploded onto the international scene. In 1995, playing for Brazil in that mini tournament that was played in England, earned his move from Palmieri's to Inter Milan, had the one season there. Roy Hodgson, for some reason, thought he was a left winger. He left and went to Real Madrid, and he was just sensational for 11 years. Went on to Fenerbahce, Corinthians, Anzi, and then finished off playing in, in India for like a month or something. But not as good, not nearly as good defensively as he was going forward. But his pace made him really hard to beat. But just a phenomenal attacking weapon. Kind of revolutionized the left back spot. 
one of the best strikers of a ball of all time. Obviously, everybody has seen the free kicks that he scored over the years. He he made it so that a free kick 40 yards and in became a shooting chance. Him and, and Janino at Leon Didn't matter where you fell them, within the opposition half, they were having a pop. In his career, he won 125 caps for Brazil, scored 11 goals, obviously won the World Cup in 2002 and was part of the squad that was runners-up in 98. Also won two Copa Americas in 97 and 99, was a runner-up in 95. The Umbro Cup in 95, that's what I was trying to think of. Uh, With Real, he won four league titles and three European Cups. He was brought to Real by Capello and just he thrived there. Absolutely thrived there. Going forward, he was just a force of nature. Defensively, there were some issues. Um, But he was very hard to beat 1v1. But at five foot six, you could put the ball on top of him and players could cause him problems. So he's number six for me. Number seven, I've gone Ashley Cole. Um, From a defensive point of view, purely defensive, he's probably three on this list after Maldini and Fischetti. Not as good going forward or on the ball as any of the rest of them. But he was he was phenomenal defensively. And his and he was he was still going good going forward. He just wasn't the type who could carry the ball. He wasn't the type that'd play a quick one two to get out of trouble or whatever. He was the guy who'd give it in field and he'd go and it, it'd come back to him eventually on the overlap. A good cross of the ball, but not a great crosser. But he could arrow the ball really well into that corridor of uncertainty, which if Arsenal forwards or England forwards or Chelsea forwards gambled on it, they would get goals from, and they often did. Um, Ashley won a ferocious amount during his career. Obviously, doesn't have the international success to speak of, but did win 107 caps for England, which is still a hell of an achievement. Um, two Premier League titles with Arsenal, including the unbeaten season, three FA Cups, runner-up in the Champions League in 2006, won one league title with Chelsea, four FA Cups. I believe his seven FA Cups are the most that any player has won. Also won a League Cup there, won a Champions League there, and won a Europa League there. Um, PFA team of the season four times, so that's though some of those... Uh, team selections. Not him. He he deserved it, but some of them are silly. Um, <clears throat> for my money, the second best left back the Premier League has seen after Dennis Irwin. And we've had some good left backs, so that's that's pretty good. And like, even though he's seventh and Irwin I have at second, Irwin could be Irwin could be fifth. The gulf between them isn't all that big. But I'm happy with my list. Um, In the eighth spot, I've gone for Antonio Cabrini, legendary Juventus left back. Played for Cremonese, Atalanta, but it was Juve that he really made his name with from 76 to 89. He won 73 Italian caps from 78 to 87. Was part of the Italian squad that won the World Cup in 82, was also part of the Italian squad that finished fourth in 1978. 
and I believe fourth in the 1980 Euros. Um, won six league titles with Juve, two Copa Italias, European Cup, Cup Winners Cup, and UEFA Cup. So he's one of those rare players that won all three. Juve are obviously one of those rare clubs that won all three. Another like Irwin, like Maldini, who was incredibly two-footed. Now, I think I think he was naturally left-footed and just worked really hard on his right foot, whereas the others two were naturally right-footed and worked really hard on the left foot. I think I'm right in saying that. But he might well have been right-footed. He was that good with it. So really good on the overlap, could cut back could, so he could cross off either foot, could come in field and get a shot away. He scored 33 goals in his time at at league goals in his time at Juve. Um, Yeah, just a tremendous player. A great all-round fullback. I would say very similar to Irwin. Quicker, though. Quicker than Irwin. He played as a winger early in his career and moved backwards. And when he played as a fullback, he just... He just had natural gifts to play fullback that didn't work when he was a, a winger. He was a failed winger. He was what Carragher talked about. He was a failed winger who got moved backwards. Quick, technical, good passer, excellent defender. Excellent defender. Great striker of the ball, like Dennis Irwin. Good mentality. Very, very consistent. And could take set pieces, free kicks, corners, and penalties. Next, we've got Jose Antonio Camacho, uh, legendary left-back for Real Madrid. And Spain played for Real from 1974 to 1989, played for Spain from 75 to 88 and won 81 caps. He's obviously probably better known by many as a manager, but as a player with Real, he won nine La Liga's, five Copa del Reyes, and two UEFA Cups. Was also part of the Spanish squad that finished second in the 1984 Euros. Um, Definitely more defensive than many of the others on this list. But 1v1, he was unbeatable. Like, unbeatable 1v1. Strong, quick, good feet, tough. Just had that... Had it had the narrow to him. Like, imagine if Ramos had been able, if Ramos had stayed at right back and been able to harness all that rage that he plays with. That's kind of what Camacho was. Um, but he, he could pass the ball. Like, he had a good technical level. But, like, a more aggressive Puyol, but as a left back rather than a centre back or right back. That's kind of how I describe him. Others might disagree, but that's how I describe him from having watched quite a bit of 1980s Real Madrid. Um, Last on my list then, number 10, I've gone for Andreas Bremer. Scored the winning goal in the 1990 World Cup. Another right footer who played left back, could play anywhere up the left side, could play in midfield, could play right back. Just a model of consistency. 10 years with the German national team, 84 to 94. Won the World Cup, was a runner-up 
in the Euros in 92, was a runner-up in the World Cup in 86. Best known club-wise for his times at Kaiserslautern. He had two spells there and he had a spell at Inter, but he also played for Saarbrücken, Bayern Munich and uh, Saragossa, weirdly, had one season there. Um, but Kaiserslautern is probably where he's best known for. Won the Bundesliga with Kaiserslautern in 1998. Had won the Bundesliga second division in 97. Uh, won the Bundesliga with Bayern in 87. And won Serie A with Inter in 89. Also won a UEFA Cup with Inter in 1991. Um, again, it just really good going forward. Comfortable on both feet. Was one of the few the one of the first fullbacks I ever saw to underlap and and make angles for the winger to play a ball between the right back and right side centre back. And he would make that run into that channel and then he could go either direction. Great, great free kick taker. Incredible cross through the ball. Maybe the best corner kick taker ever, because he could take them off both feet. And he and he could play, he could go one side. Say he went to the right corner. As you're looking at the opposition goal, he went to the right corner. And he took the first free kick. He might to the corner. He might take it right footed as an outswinger. And the defense clears it for the corner. And rather than repeat it, he just go left footed and play it as an in an inswinger. And you don't get that. Very few players can do that. Very few players can can strike the ball as well with either foot. Um, According to Wikipedia, which may be wrong, reportedly he's naturally right-footed and felt like, but felt like his, sorry, reportedly he's naturally left-footed, but felt like he was more accurate with his right. His left was more for power, his right was more for accuracy. Robbie Fowler was like that. Robbie Fowler was more accurate with his right foot more powerful was left, but he was naturally left-footed. Interesting. Interesting. If you ever get a chance to see the 86 World Cup quarterfinal, just go and watch his goal on that one. Um, so that's my top 10 all-time. Maldini, Irwin, Breitner, Kroll, Fischetti, Carlos, Cole, Cabrini, Camacho, and Bremen. That's my top 10 all-time. Um, my top 10 in the Premier League right now, which is where I actually should have started, but I got carried away. Um, <clears throat> number one, I've got Purvis Estupinen. I think right now he's the best left back in the league. And I think he's been the best left back in the league since the start of this calendar year. In the number two spot, I've gone Nathan Aki. I think defensively he's outstanding. I think last season, over the course of the year, he was the best left back in the league. And unfortunately for him, then City went and spent 80-odd million on Josco Gvardiol, which means Aki's going to play less. Now, I think he'll still play a fair bit, but I think it's it's just like, yeah, he had that season where he was that good all year. And you go and drop 80-odd million on a player in the same position as him. That's just, it's tough to take. Uh, number three. Now, there is, I think there's a drop here. In large part because this next player has declined significantly. 
This next player was the, was the best left back in the league for probably four years, Andy Robertson. But he has declined significantly. He's still capable of good games, and I'm hopeful that this shoulder injury will actually give him plenty of rest because he just got ran into the ground for like five years, averaging about 60 games a season between club and country. Then I've got Luke Shaw, and it's only he's only behind Robertson because of the injuries. Because at this point in time, Luke Shaw is the better footballer than Andy Robertson. He's better on the ball. He's not as good a crosser than Robertson, but he's a better passer than Robertson. <clears throat> he's a better dribbler than Robertson. Defensively, he's more versatile than Robertson. So he can play left centre-back as well. He's comfortable in a three or in a two. Um, he's sturdier than Robertson. It's a part of it. But the injuries do hold him back. And the injuries also hold the next fella back in Ben Chilwell, who I think probably would be second or third, if not for injuries. I really like Ben Chilwell. He's got quite a simple game. Doesn't do a whole lot that's spectacular, but he's super intelligent. He makes the best opposite side runs of any fullback anywhere in the world. By that, I mean, if your buildup is on the right, the run he makes on the left-hand side, nobody else is as good as he is. Whether He just knows where to go to be in the optimal position to A, receive a pass, and B, have then have space to make something happen. So I've gone with Ben Chilwell, number five. Number six, it's another player who's currently out with an injury and is going to miss the rest of the season, but I think Rico Henry's excellent. I think he's really unfortunate because I think with, with Shaw's injury issues and Chilwell just constantly being injured, I think Rico Henry had a chance to potentially force his way into the England squad for next summer. And now that's gone. And it's a shame because I've always liked Rico Henry. I've been a big fan for a long, long time. He came through at Exeter. No, Walsall. Walsall. And when he was at Walsall, he was linked to Liverpool. And that kind of caught my attention because I didn't know who he was. So started paying attention and, you know, keeping an eye out for reviews and performances and, any clips I could have. And if I ever found a stream or if Walsall just happened to be on TV because Sky were showing a game in which they were involved, I'd make sure I watched it. And he always impressed me. Always impressed me. And the other thing then that kind of drew my affinity for him, I suppose is the best word, is that he played for Cadbury Athletic which is the club where Daniel Sturridge got his start as well. So just that alone was enough for me, because I love Daniel Sturridge, is the most talented English striker of the last 15 years. You can keep everybody else. Injuries ruined what would have been a genuinely special career. He's more talented than Harry Kane is. Together, they'd have been an unstoppable force for England. But that... That kind of drew it for, for me with Rico Henry. But then he went to Brentford in the championship. And for the first three years he was there, I was trying to tell people that this guy is really good. And they were laughing at me because he wasn't playing. He played 12 games, 8 games, and 16 games because he kept getting injured. Kept having just muscle injuries every few weeks. 
He'd get a little run of the team, he'd get injured. A little run of the team, he'd get injured. And then finally, in 1920, he managed to stay fit and put it all together. And he was incredible. And he started getting linked to top clubs again. Then he had another good season, though with some injuries the following year. Brentford get promoted. And he has been, since Brentford came up, he has been brilliant. He has been absolutely brilliant since Brentford got promoted. He's 26 now. If he's going to get a big move, I think it has to be this summer. So someone's going to have to gamble on him coming off a torn ACL. The problem for him is there's a pretty strong crop of left backs in the league. So I don't know where that move would be. I should point out now, I'm basing this also on body of work, not just, you know, you've had a great start to the season. It's got to be body of work. So next up, I've gone Rayan Aitnuri of Wolves, who I think from a talent point of view is the most talented left back in the league and one of the most talented in Europe. Focus isn't always his biggest strength, but he's still really young. What is Rayan Aitnuri? Is he 22? Ryan Aitnuri is 22 in the summer, past this past summer. But high technical ability, good passer of the ball, great dribbler, rarely gives the ball away, really good defender, like a lockdown left back who regularly pockets the best right wingers in the league. The other issue I have with him that keeps him from being higher is you watch them play against one of the top teams and on 70 he's blown out of his arse he's down with cramp and he has to go off I don't know what that is whether it's a lack of fitness whether he's not training as hard as he needs to I don't know I don't I don't want to suggest that he's not putting in the effort and training but when he's on he is he is phenomenal. So I've got him next. Then I've gone Tyreek Mitchell of Crystal Palace. I think this is a body of work pick because I think he's been really good the last couple of years. So I've picked him above the next two based on body of work, whereas the next two are definitely better players and definitely have much higher ceilings. But I like Tyreek Mitchell. I think he's a reliable 7 out of 10 most weeks. He's comfortable on the ball. He's good defensively. He's a decent crosser. He's a willing runner. He's intelligent. So I've got Tyreek Mitchell at number eight. Number nine, I've got Destiny Adoiji. He will be much higher by the end of the season. He is. He, he looks like he could be really special. He looks like he's going to be a top 10 left back in the world within 12 months. And so does this guy, Milos Kerkez of Bournemouth. I've been so impressed with both of them this season. Adoji has settled into a brand new defence there at Spurs that I talked about earlier, and he it, he looks like he's been there for years. Kirkes has had a little bit of a tougher time because Bournemouth obviously are struggling. He's had multiple different centre-backs play to his right-hand side, which means he hasn't been able to build an understanding with them. There hasn't been a constant presence in midfield either. So that means he just doesn't have that understanding. He's also had a rotating cast of left wingers in front of him. So he hasn't had the best of circumstances, but every time I watch him play, I come away thinking, yeah, that kid's 
that kid's got everything. Very good defensively, very good going forward, really good cross for the ball. And he's high on the list of players I think end up at a top club within within 18 to 24 months. So that's my top 10 in the Premier League. Now, Estupinen, Aki, Robertson, Shaw, Chilwell, Rico Henry, Aitnuri, Mitchell, Adoiji, and Kirkes. My top 10 in the world, I'm not in love with. I like it, but there's there's two that I'm not not in love with because one has declined so much and the other is just constantly hurt. Um, So Theo Hernandez for me is the best left back in the world. I think all round package and consistency, Theo Hernandez is the best left back in the world. I watch him play for that Milan team and so much comes through him and he gets zero help defensively from the fella in front of him. Like Rafael Leao if you went to Rafael Leao and told him that there was another part to the game that took place when Milan doesn't have the ball, that's called defending, he would have no idea what you were talking about. It would be a completely foreign concept to him. So Theo defensively has to defend against right wingers and right backs while Leao stands about scratching himself. And he, he does a really good job. Second, I've got Alfonso Davies, the most talented left-back on the planet right now, without doubt. Freak athlete, great dribbler, good defensively, has some lapses, but he's still so young. Was he 23? I'm still outraged and gutted that Liverpool didn't sign him when they had the opportunity. He was on a plate for them. They had first refusal, and they had the inside track. Andy O'Brien, former... Vancouver Whitecaps legend was working for Liverpool as a scout primarily based on the west coast of North America had an existing relationship with Alfonso Davies recommended him to the club secured first option and Liverpool passed on him fucking hell number three I've got Purvis Estupinen I think that's a fair spot for him. I think he's outstanding, like I said. Uh, number four, I've gone for Federico Di Marco of Inter Milan, who I just think in the last two years has really stepped up his level. Having looked like a player who might just slip through the cracks, might just end up not producing at the level he was capable of. I think he's been tremendous last season and the season before. And he started this season very impressively as well. I've gone for him. I like him. He is sometimes questionable defensively because he's not the biggest, but he's strong as an ox. Good 1v1, has really quick feet, so defender or wingers have a tough time getting around him. But there is some flaws in his defensive game. He doesn't have great awareness. He can get beaten with crossfield passes in behind him. 
He's not always a good back post defender, which is kind of bread and butter as a fullback. And he's definitely more a wing back than fullback, it must be said. But yeah, I think his all round game, I think Warren's, Warren's fourth. Going forward, he's, he's a machine. Uh, I've gone Nathan Aki then after him um, for all the reasons I laid out earlier. I think he's really good defensively. He's good in the ball. He's versatile. He's consistent. I really like him. Uh, next, then, I've gone David Rom of Red Bull Leipzig. Now, I thought he had a good season last year. I have seen some criticism of him, but I think he was let down by some of his teammates, to be quite honest. He is a chance-creating machine. As an overlapping fullback, he is the most relentless player in the game right now. I think he's I think he's really good. Uh that's six, seven. I've gone Robertson. Again, that's the one I I, I don't love it because he has declined so much, but the players I've got at nine and ten, they don't have the body of work and they're not as consistent in their work. So I've gone him at seven, Luke Shaw at eight. They're the two I'm not keen on. At nine, I've gone with Alejandro Balde of Barcelona. It's just a question of consistency with him. But like body work wise, you're only talking about 62 senior games in his career. And last season was his first real season. However, the kid is special. And within 12 months, he's probably, well, he's probably a top five player on this list. The ceiling for him is to be the best left back in the world. That's his ceiling. That's the talent level that kid has. He's really special. But we just need to see it more often. We need to see it. We need to see more of it. Um, but Barca have a gem on their hands there. Team of the season last season in this first real, real campaign is very, very impressive. Next up, this guy would be top five if he could stay fit because he has, he's got the lot. Defensively, he is so quick and so aggressive that he's just impossible to shake. So he's got really good 1v1 defensive attributes. His positioning is poor. That's the big, big issue with him. His defensive positioning is poor. Part of that is that he was developed as a wingback, but only really got one season as a wingback. And then got moved to fullback in a very strange team. It's Nuno Mendes of PSG. So he came through at Sporting and Ruben Amram plays at wingback. So he got developed as a left wingback. And he was incredible. Absolutely incredible. But then he moved to PSG and he just... Rotating cast of centre-backs, rotating rotating cast of midfielders, a manager that wasn't sure whether he was playing a back three or a back four, and it would change week to week. It's kind of the same mess and now. He's injured again. Injuries are the, are, the, are the real thing here, though. The two things he needs to work on more than anything is defensive positioning, and that will come. Positioning and awareness, all that kind of stuff will come in time as he gets older and more experienced. I mean, the kid's only 21. Turned 21 in the summer. He's got everything you would want in a young left back. 
And then his decision-making. He's a brilliant crosser. A brilliant crosser. He might be, after Theo Hernandez, the best crosser on this list, which is saying something, because Rom, DeMarco, Estupinen, Robertson, and Shaw, less so Shaw, but the others for certain, are all great crossers. And he might be the best crosser on the list. But his decision-making, when to cross, that's the issue. If he works that out and works out his positioning and awareness, which he will, because he's 21. And if he gets a real manager who, who knows what he's doing, and not Luis Enrique, who seems to just be on holiday in Paris, perhaps, if he gets the right type of coaching, there's genuinely... There's genuinely nothing that stops this kid becoming one of the two or three best left backs in the world, maybe the best left back in the world. He has the size and speed you'd want. He's the technical ability you'd want. I think he's a clever player. I do think he's a clever player. I just hope that physically he doesn't fall apart. So Theo Hernandez, Alfonso Davies, Purvis is stupid and DeMarco, Aki, Rom, Robertson, Shaw, Balde, and Mendes. And then finally, my five favorite left backs. So Maldini is obviously one. Irwin is obviously two. Roberto Carlos was just so much fun to watch that he's got to be three. That combination down the left side of him and Zidane was just incredible. Or when they play with an actual winger like Santi, uh, Santiago Solari, that was fun. Obviously, playing for Brazil as a wing back, just with license to go and, and attack and having that entire left flank to himself, he was also incredible. Um, four, I've gone with Robert Yarny. And it's because I've been thinking about him quite a bit, because I've mentioned him on a few podcasts lately because of the the Croatian national team, and then because of the shenanigans at uh, Coventry. But even though it didn't work out for him at Real, like he was so, so good at Real Betis. And he was such a good crosser of the ball. And in terms of, like, Andy Robertson is the closest thing in the modern game to Robert Yarny. That... That kind of just end-line-to-end-line, relentless left-back. Great cross with the ball. Yarny probably a slightly better cross crosser on the run. Robertson probably a slightly better crosser from a standstill. But Yarny's set pieces were levels above Robertson's. Robert Yarny was great. And then Felipe Luis, who doesn't get enough love, one of the great modern left-backs. Uh, very unfortunate not to have a lot more caps for Brazil. Uh, did win 44, but of course was around at the same time as Marcelo. And Marcelo won 58. Now, between them, that's what, 112 caps that were there to be won. And obviously other players also won caps in that time. For as good as Marcelo was going forward, he was woeful defensively. Felipe Luiz was brilliant defensively. Well, what most people don't remember is when he came to Europe, he was a proper 
flying, attacking left back. He had a loan at Ajax. It didn't work out. He went to Uruguay as a kind of roundabout way to get to Europe, got loaned to Real Madrid's B team. They decided not to take up an option to buy him. He got loaned to Deportivo La Coruña. He was brilliant for them for two years. Then they bought him. And he was like an express train down that left side. He was so, so good going forward. And like, it was a big ask for him when he went there because he was replacing Cap de Villa. And Cap de Villa was one of the best left backs in Europe at the time. Was obviously part of the Spain squad that won the Euros in 08 and the World Cup in 2010. Cap de Villa was excellent. So for Felipe Luis to step in at 22 years of age and have to replace him was a big ask. Not, not only did he did it, did he do it? He was much better than Cap de Villa. Immediately, he was incredible going forward. And then he had one of the most horrific injuries I've ever seen. He broke his right leg. He was just so, so good. And when he came back, he lost a bit of his burst. And he got a move to Atletico Madrid. And he was still good going forward, so don't take that away from him. But he didn't have that relentless power and pace. And obviously went to play for Diego Simeone. Well, Simeone took over, what, a year after or eight months after he he went there. And Simeone decided to harness the athleticism in a different way. And he made him, for a while, the best defensive left back in Europe in that incredible back four that they had with Juan Fran, Jimenez, Godin and him. And Miranda before Jimenez. And he became this great defensive left back. And then Chelsea bought him. And I don't think he ever wanted to go to Chelsea. I just think the money was too good to turn down. And Mourinho was looking for a replacement for Ashley Cole. And he was the, probably after Ash. At that, at that point, he had overtaken Ashley Cole as the best left back, the best defensive left back in Europe. But it just didn't work. He didn't settle at all. I think he only played like 20 games, 26 games. Um, did win a league title, though, so, you know, he has that. Uh, but he went back to Atleti and had four years, was still very, very good. Started to age a little bit towards the end, but was still consistently a 7 out of 10 at least. Really, really good player. Always liked him. So, yeah, he's my number five. Maldini, Irwin, Carlos and Robert, Robert Yarny and Felipe Luiz. We will finish out. Oh, we have we have news. Uh, we have a couple of bits of news. We're going to start with the positive news, and then we're going to go on to what is sad news. Even if many people will probably celebrate this news, and and because they're wrongs. Marco Silva has signed a new contract with Fulham. That's the positive news. And he will stay at the club until 2026. Now, obviously, he had a big offer to go to Saudi Arabia in the summer, turned it down, has now committed his future to uh, Fulham. 
Uh, just sticking with managers for a minute, Ajax have made a change. Uh, Maurice Stein has been sacked. Well, mutual consent, but he's been sacked. Um, I, Ajax have obviously had a catastrophic start to the season. Uh, in the Eredivisie at the moment, I believe they're second from bottom. Yeah. Second from bottom, one win from seven games. They are 22 points behind PSV. Now, they do have two games in hand. But even if they win them, they'd be 16 points behind already. They're 20 points behind Alkmaar in second and 18 behind Feyenoord in third, and 17 behind 20 in fourth. Their chances of European football next season are already over. Um, so no surprise they've made the decision to to move on. The sad news is that Everton chairman Bill Kenwright, an acclaimed West End theatre and film producer, has died at the age of 78. Kenwright had surgery to remove a cancerous tumour from his liver eight weeks ago. He has been on the board at Everton since 1989, taking over as chairman of the club in 2004. Uh, The Liverpoolian was also one of the UK's most successful theatre producers and played Gordon Clegg in Coronation Street between 1968 and 2012, which I genuinely had no idea about. Kenwright was awarded a CBE for his services to film and theatre in 2001. Everton said it was the club was in mourning following his death. He had been the longest serving chairman for more than a century. The club has lost a chairman, a leader, a friend and an inspiration. There will be a lot of Everton fans who may rejoice in this news because there's a lot of dislike towards Bill Kenwright, but that's wrong. Any loss of life, any loss of life is is a tragedy, um, and you need to just put the football side of it apart and just look at the human element here. Uh, Bill Kenwright has passed away. He leaves behind friends and family who are going to be devastated, and the last thing any of them need is to, to go on social media and see Everton fans happy about this. It, this is a sad day for Everton Football Club and everybody connected to it. So. Uh, whatever you think about Bill Kenwright and decisions he made as the chairman, just remember he's also a guy. He was a guy doing a job, but did, maybe he didn't always do it the way you wanted, but he did it in what he thought was the best interest of the club. Um, on to the gossip. Arsenal remain interested in trying to sign Douglas Luiz from Aston Villa. They've been trying to sign him for about 18 months, so it makes sense. Chelsea and Manchester City are considering a move for Alessandro Bastoni. I will tell you now why this is crap. Uh, Firstly, Manchester City just spent 80-odd million on Josco Gvardiol, a left-footed left-side centre-back who can also play left-back. Meaning, and they have Nathan Aki, a left-footed, left-side centre-back who can also play left-back and was the best left-back in the league last season. Uh, They have no need for Alessandro Bastoni. Chelsea just gave Levi Colwell an extended contract and signed Benoit Badiashile to a long contract. Both of them left-side centre-backs, left-footed, who can play left-back. So neither of those clubs have any need 
any need at all for Alessandro Bastoni, as good and all as he is. Everton are concerned by Al Etifak's reported interest in Dominic Calvert-Lewin as their takeover uncertainty continues. Now, this is Football Insider. It is our good friend Peter Rourke, and therefore, it is undeniable spoofing. Uh, Manchester United are open to any January transfer offer for Jadon Sancho, with his United career being 90% over. Fiorentina and Argentina winger Nicolas Gonzalez is attracting attention from several Premier League clubs after an impressive start to the season. He had a good season last year. He's had a really good start to this season. However, if you go on transfer market and look him up and go to stats and go to injury injury record, he's 25. He's already got a page two. That's a concern. Uh, West Ham are monitoring AZ Alkmaar and Greece forward Vangelis Pavlidis as they look to bolster their attacking options. Makes sense. Makes sense. They should have just kept Skamaka, though. Manchester City are open to and consider the exit of Calvin Phillips very likely in January. Well, that's not news. We've known that for months. Um, Bayern Munich, Juventus and Liverpool are among the clubs who could make a move for Phillips. Sevilla are also monitoring the contract talks of Hannibal Mejbri, Hannibal Mejbri and Manchester United. That makes sense. He's a good player. Uh, Man City are confident Julian Alvarez will remain at the club despite interest from Barcelona and Real Madrid. Once you give him his new contract, all those rumours will go away. That's why the rumours exist, because his agent's trying to get him a new contract. Burnley and Kosovo goalkeeper... Arijanit Muric is attracting interest from several clubs, including Union Berlin and Sevilla. He's too error-prone for me, but he is talented. Inter Milan, former clubs, former club AC Milan and Juventus are all interested in Lille centre-back Thiago Jallo, with the former Portugal under-21 internationals contract set to expire in the summer. He's very good. Not quite as good as he should be by now, though. He went to Lille from AC in the deal that brought Rafael Leao to Milan. Uh, Ajax are likely to fail with any approach to lure Manchester United assistant manager Mitchell van der Gag back to the club to, to become the new manager. Um, I, I, I don't think appointing someone that's never been a manager before is the right move at this moment in time for Ajax. I don't care how bold he is. I, I well, actually, to be fair, to to be fair, he has managed before, but at significantly lower levels than what we're talking about here with Ajax. He managed NAC Brada for a year and Excelsior for a year. Like keeping them in the division is all you're asked to do there. He managed FC Eindhoven, not PSV, FC Eindhoven who are a lower league team. I I don't think so. I don't think so. Maybe. Like, maybe that's the move. I just, not for me. I think they'd be better off going with a more, a more proven quantity, a steadier hand. That, to me, would make more sense. 
Bournemouth boss Andoni Iraola is facing showdown talks this week and could be the first Premier League manager to be sacked. I don't believe that story. Uh, that's it. That is all I have for today. I will see you all tomorrow. Take care of yourselves. Bye-bye. Podcast Network.